again, it's really about redefining our relationship to, to capital, to environment, to each other. It acknowledges these intersectional relationship between the environment, the economy, and equity, and to recognize that you know, fixing income inequality, fixing racism, fixing gender inequality, fixing environmental degradation really requires changing an economy that's screwing up everything. What does energy democracy mean, and how does the fight for an equitable, clean energy future mirror the movement to abolish slavery? Denise Fairchild is the president of Emerald Cities Collaborative and co-editor with Al Weinrub of the book Energy Democracy, Advancing Equity in Clean Energy Solutions. In this interview, we discuss the stories illustrated in the book, how they embody the concept of energy democracy, and what we need to do to make our energy system more small-D democratic. I'm John Farrell, director of the Energy Democracy Initiative at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, and this is Local Energy Rules, a podcast sharing powerful stories about local renewable energy. Welcome, Denise. Well, thank you, John. I'm glad to be on your program and have a conversation about this important topic. Yes. Well, I just want to say thank you again for taking the time and thank you for putting together this book. It was delightful. I really enjoyed reading it, especially as I work on energy democracy issues through the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and many of the organizations that we collaborate with. I was hoping that we could start with a story of how energy democracy is playing out. Is there something happening out in the world that you see sort of embodying this notion of energy democracy that you draw inspiration from? Well, you know, the, the book itself uh, that, that Al and I put together really is a, a book of stories. There's stories of all the wonderful efforts that are going on in the grassroots frontline communities, really trying to bring energy into a clean energy future that's owned and controlled by communities. So the voices of non-traditional environmentalists, as you might think about it, are just what the book is about. From the young suburban high school students who just wanted to put solar on their roofs and accidentally politicized an entire community that is now fueling a national co-op movement. I mean, I love that story, but then there's, there's the story of uh, immigrant refugees, you know, Chinese immigrants, basically monolingual populations on the West Coast that are not only fighting Chevron in, in the fossil fuel industry because it's keeping them in the hospital with respiratory and asthma cases, uh, but they are these are folks that are now at the forefront of California's progressive energy policies. But what's most even compelling about that is that they're also you know participating in rallies for Black Lives Matter, as an example, because they are seeing the connections between the environment, the economy, and equity that is all sort of rooted in this sort of notion of how our economy is just screwing everybody. Or even the fight of the local clean energy alliance, which is fighting to make community choice a reality, really, really about community, um, and not just putting energy services in the hands of government, but making sure that government is also engaging community in its governance of these energy resources. And they're also taking on the, the, the struggle to democratize PG&E, uh, as you know, because of the, the bankruptcy and the recent climate fires that's, that's taken place on the West Coast. There's a restructuring. There will be a restructuring taking place with PG&E and, and the communities in the fight about how we actually take this large utility and, and put these assets in the hands of communities. That's what the book is about. The stories like this... But my favorite story is really the one that embodies for me what 
what the struggle is and and then what the hope is is the story of one voice in uh, Jackson in, in Mississippi. And this is a story about uh, uh, black rural communities. And you know, folks think about rural communities; they don't recognize there's a lot of black folks in in rural communities. And and how these one voice is going around, really community organizing, knocking on doors, one by one, and actually asking people the question: Do you know that you own an energy company? And most of the folks in these communities don't recognize that they are part of a co-op, and they have never seen a dividend check. They have never participated in the governance of these rural co-ops. Um, at the same time, they're seeing that their utility bills are, you know, that represent 40% of their household budgets. Many of these co-ops are still burning coal. The profits that are being realized out of these rural co-ops are often used to support conservative issues and conservative politicians against the interests of these community residents. This is one story in the book where this organizing is bringing not only knowledge and education to the residents themselves, but they're politicizing the residents and training them through their their Institute for Rural Electrification about the bylaws, about what it means to be a member of a co-op, um, and then getting residents to actually think about running to be on the board, to begin to transform who governs these assets so that that they can burn clean energy, so that they can get out of coal, that the profits can, in fact, be used to reinvest in other community needs and to build community wealth. So anyway, that's that's my favorite story. And I, I guess part of it is because I, I was able, uh, recently we, we did an energy tour of many of these local efforts that are taking place around the country. And I got to visit a couple of these rural counties outside of Jackson, Mississippi, to actually see people come to these meetings for the first time ever in decades actually getting a dividend check because of the word, I guess, has been going around, that there's a movement afoot. Uh, They're getting checks for like 20 years that may run from 1960 to 1980, but these checks were like for $50, $60. So there's a lot of uh, you know plantation politics still taking place in the South. Rural co-ops are all over the country, and I think it's part of what we're trying to see or how we see energy democracy playing itself out. One of the things I really liked in the book, and I think it relates to both what you said, you already kind of introduced this discussion about PG&E, this big utility in California, but I think it matters as well related to the co-ops is there's this core thread about treating energy as a commons rather than as a private commodity. And I I feel like we're in this moment where this concept is really coming alive. So you mentioned community choice, the work of local clean energy alliance, and millions of California residents and communities are exercising their right to have that kind of local control. There's a bill in the main legislature to make one of the largest electric transmission companies public because of how it's kind of mismanaged the delivery of service to customers in Maine. And then you have this PG&E here that's the second bankruptcy of one of California's largest electric utilities because of this mismanagement of its infrastructure. And you have, as you said, a restructuring, you know, maybe even a public takeover in the offing. Is this where this notion of the commons really gets started? Are there other examples that we should know about where this commons conversation is happening? Well, in fact, John, these are really good examples that you highlighted about um, 
putting our energy resources into the hands of, of the public um, and the community. These are tools, you would say, of shared governance and, and resource management. In fact, what's interesting is that the California Public Utilities Commission estimated itself that in five years or so, as much as 60% of California's energy services will be in public hands through community choice aggregation. Now, as you can imagine, that's being fiercely fought by the investor-owned utilities, but it really does represent the sentiment about who should own and who should control energy and how it could be best managed and governed. But I don't think that just because we're putting energy into it, and that's not where the comments came from, and I don't think just putting our energy resources into the hands of government suggest that we're actually going to get to energy democracy. In fact, if you sort of leverage your riff off of what I just mentioned about rural electric co-ops, I mean, these are essentially public resources that are being not used for public purposes. So the commons has a, a sort of a deeper, you know, first of all, the commons, the idea of the commons is, is core to the energy democracy movement as we're, we're trying to build it. And it's really about our, our relationship at a deeper level to the environment and how we even achieve sort of this ecosystem balance. It's really rooted in something more spiritual about how we value the gifts that nature offers us as, as a human species and our responsibility to respect nature, that nature actually belongs to no one. Um, and we must not only share it, but prudently conserve it and regenerate it. But this is not a radical idea. I mean, there's nothing uncommon about the idea of the commons. It's really rooted in traditional societies. It's, it's one of the reasons why it's really important to bring the lived and cultural experiences of, of communities of color into this conversation about our clean energy future. Um, indigenous communities here in America was really, a lot of the ideas of the commons was was really rooted in you know, locally here in, in our Native American communities about how we, when we fish, what days we fish, what we can fish, what trees we cut down, what trees we don't touch. Again, a lot of it is rooted in a sense of the spirit world, that these are these are living entities in which elders may even be still living, you know, in, in another world. It's, I've interviewed over a dozen of my colleagues throughout the African diaspora and trying to ask them what they recall of their own African uh, experiences. And, you know, they faintly remember their culture where it says these are resources that need to be shared, protected, and they're taboos about what you cannot do with these gifts. But it's also the idea of commons was part of the, the Magna Carta in the 13th century. It's part of our modern public trust laws. It's foundational to the New Deal. In fact, rural electric co-ops, milk co-ops have all been sort of rooted in the idea of the commons and our national parks, the Yellowstone or Grand Canyon, these are commons. These are natural resources that we're holding in public trust. Um, and even our internet or, or, you know, hopefully we can keep it as a, our other open source system. So the commons is fairly common and it really does require us to re-examine who we are, what kind of society we want to live in, and what's our relationship to the environment, uh, to capital, and to each other. I want to take a step back to something, to sort of the bigger concept of energy democracy, because I think this is really 
that conversation about the commons was so interesting in the book, both the spiritual connection, the connection to indigenous communities, but also a lot of the political history that the white Europeans have brought. And then you also have this broader concept then of energy democracy. So commons is this core piece of it. I'm just curious, how did you define in the book this concept of energy democracy? Like what are the core principles in addition to the commons that are important about it? And then what does it look like when we achieve energy democracy? How is our system, instead of being parceled out with private ownership of energy resources, how is that going to look different? You know, John, I think that's always the hardest question that people ask me is, you know, what what is energy democracy? But there is no straightforward one-line answer about what energy democracy is. But for me, I, I think it's a way to reimagine, re-engineer, and rebuild our economy. Again, it's really about redefining our relationship to, to capital, to the environment, to each other. It acknowledges these intersectional relationship between the environment, the economy, and equity, and to recognize that you know, fixing income inequality, fixing racism, fixing gender inequality, fixing environmental degradation really requires changing an economy that's screwing up everything. So it's really a framework for understanding all that's going wrong and, and energy democracy perhaps being an antidote to all of that where we're bringing in you know, different values and experience to the conversation. And there is no, we, we asked the, the authors of the book, for example, to put their values and principles together, and everyone had a different set of values. They're were, they were overlapping, and there were some commonalities, but you know, there isn't like five values that we hold on to other than the fact that um, because we, we're bringing threads of, of different historic struggles into an energy democracy movement. So the struggle for land rights and civil rights and environmental justice and, you know, correctional reform, all of this is finally moving into sort of a meta-level social change movement for democratizing our economy through the energy sector. Um, it lays out principles that speak to how we democratize governance of the energy sector, how we democratize and liberate the environment uh, and our natural resources from from greed and commodification, how we democratize our economy. So these are sort of constructs, and in fact, we're taking these constructs, you know, about what does a, a democratized energy economy look like and putting it into a scorecard so we can begin to see how communities look from the extreme right, which is, you know, an extractive economy that is really about fossil fuels to the sort of extreme extraction to to one that is, you know, the vision of energy democracy. What what does that really look like? What are the policies that undergird that? So we're in the process of envisioning this and we're using the voices and the experience of communities to animate this and to really define what that future is. So we're co creating this and so I don't have a clear, unfortunately, answer for you, but we are we have a framework around which we're working. You know, I should have asked this question in the context of I wasn't attempting to define it entirely, but tried to define it mostly in the scope of ILSR's work, but kind of had three core concepts that we identified in the work that we do about what energy democracy means. And I think there's a lot of overlap. You know, one was around about 
the sources and ownership of energy generation being distributed widely. Another one was about the management of the energy system being government governed with democratic principles so that there would be more local and community-based governance and that you would have wide distribution of power generation and ownership and that the access to both of those things would be in, not inhibited by race or socioeconomic status or the traditional barriers that we've seen. And I think there are some bigger pieces that are in the book that I really appreciated and I think a little bit more historical perspective, but that's one way we've tried at ILSR at least to define it in, I think, more narrow terms just in the energy sector. Yeah, I, I think that's absolutely right. And the uh, when I talk about uh, democratizing uh, governance, it's really about the community engagement and community organizing and who sits at the table and who makes the decision and where's the local control about uh, that future. So it's democratizing government it, governance, as I said, is democratizing the um, the environment, which is rooted in the, the notion of the commons and the elements that how the commons is seen as a public good and how we look at uh, strategies and tools for resource management, shared resource management is about democratizing the economy. And so we are actually decommodifying the energy resources and putting the the profits, the wealth back into the hands of the community to build community wealth. Those are the pillars of energy democracy. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, we'll talk about the importance of decentralizing the economy, the parallels between the fight for energy democracy and the abolition movement, and how a bottom-up approach to clean energy can scale rapidly. Hey, thanks for listening to Local Energy Rules. If you've made it this far, you're obviously a fan, and we could use your help for just two minutes. As you probably noticed, we don't have any corporate sponsors or ads for any of our podcasts. The reason is that our mission at ILSR is to reinvigorate democracy by decentralizing economic power. Instead, we rely on you, our listeners. Your donations not only underwrite this podcast, but also help us produce all of the research and resources that we make available on our website and all of the technical assistance we provide to grassroots groups. Every year, ILSR's small staff helps hundreds of communities challenge monopoly power directly and rebuild their local economies. So please take a minute to go to ILSR.org and click on the Donate button. That's ILSR.org. And if making a donation isn't something you can do, please consider helping us in other ways. You can help other folks find this podcast by telling them about it or by giving it a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The more ratings from listeners like you, the more folks can find this podcast and ILSR's other podcasts, Community Broadband Bits and Building Local Power. Thanks again for listening. Now, back to the program. So another key concept that I saw coming through in the book, and it was especially noted in the introduction before a lot of the stories, was this notion about a transformation from centralized to decentralized. And I think that's super important because it came about in terms of both like the ownership of the system, but also the concentration of wealth. And we're seeing the downside of a centralized system, you know, not just in environmental degradation, you know, and health impacts, but also in some spectacular failures of capitalism, like the recently mothballed VC summer nuclear plant in South Carolina, where poor management by these utility executives is basically going to cost energy customers in that region $9 billion for literally nothing. They, got, they have nothing to show for it. No energy was ever generated. 
Can you talk a little bit about the different ways you see us needing to decentralize, both in terms of the scale of energy generation, but also about these issues of management and ownership? And, and what do you see as some of the benefits specifically in decentralizing control and ownership? First of all, let's just recognize that there is an energy revolution underway, and, and it's, it's happening because of climate change, driving utilities themselves to you know, re-examine their business model. And it's also being driven by the fact that new technologies, new energy technologies are coming to the forefront that is now cheaper than coal. It's, it's increasingly cheaper than gas and other forms of fossil fuels. So the utilities themselves are actually moving to decentralize their not only their source of energy, but also how they distribute energy into communities. It's it's going to be to their advantage, to their bottom line. So that's one thing that is going to happen. The question is how it happens. Again, the democratization of it so that it happens in a way that communities benefit most. But the other benefits is that it's it's about resilience. I mean, if people have an, a picture of anything, they, they have a picture of Puerto Rico and how the entire blackout of a, of a country resulted as, as the fact that you had a, a centralized grid and there was no redundancy in the energy infrastructure. And so being able to have redundant, overlapping energy sources prevents that kind of overwhelming blackout and conditions of extreme weather and other climate hazards. So it's about resilience. The benefit is also about what you care about most and your members is local self-reliance and local control. I mean, you own and control a, a huge sector of, of the economy um, and be able to use it to good use to community purposes and community services. That is what a decentralized infrastructure provides you, which is very different from what a monopoly does. A monopoly is essentially controlled with a few people and you just get to pay for the service. Uh, decentralized infrastructure really changes the the algorithm for that as as a way. And for our communities, it really is about how those assets are then used for other community revitalization and other community needs and purposes, and how we don't just use it for profits and individual wealth building, but use it for community well-being. So these are some of the benefits that I think the new infrastructure and the new sort of clean energy decentralization is going to offer. And there are different kinds of decentralized infrastructure. There, there's the rooftop, the solar, there's solar plus batteries, there's uh, microgrids. So I guess the technologies are quickly advancing, but it's, it's hard work. It's expensive. Uh, there's a lot of technical knowledge that's required to really figure out how you put some of these community grids together in particular, and it's, it's particularly important for low-income communities and communities that are renters or people that live in apartments that really don't have control or have the access to rooftop solar community grids and really in virtual meeting becomes really important options for them. So how do you do it at a scale with in communities that are already built out and for, for people who don't have ready access or are not homeowners to, to be able to have access to this new clean energy resource so it's expensive. Um, there's a not a not enough technical resources and, and financing putting into this space that will allow us to move at the at the speed that we need to. But I, I believe that those are.
sort of why we need to get there because the, the opportunities are there to, to re-engineer our entire infrastructure for community purpose. I was really drawn in the conclusion, this comparison that you drew between the energy democracy movement and the abolitionist movement to, to end slavery. And you explained in that section that abolitionists had to fight the three pillars supporting slavery, property rights, profits, and then power and privilege. And I, frankly, I was just blown away by the similarities between the two and was hoping that you could explain a little bit about how a centralized fossil fuel energy system is supported by these pillars. Like what, what is an illustration of these three factors, property rights, profits, power and privilege in our current energy system? Yes. Well, you know, um, I, I, it's interesting how I even got to that framework where, you know, it became very clear to me that our work that we're all struggling to dismantle the fossil fuel economy is in fact um, analogous to what it took to dismantle the slave economy and and that um, that was a 250 year struggle and my hope is that we our struggle is either close to being 250 years or we'll get there faster either way but bottom line is as a, a history buff and somebody who really cares about the history of my people I, I do a lot of reading you know stuff that you didn't get in school about slavery and emancipation. And part of it is to understand where am I in this arc towards justice and the work that we do here at Emerald Cities. Am I in the struggle and what is that struggle? And it became really clear that the struggle continues. Um, and then it's all around those same pillars as you examined, where where slaves were the, the source of energy in, in the slave economy. We, we look at fossil fuels as the new property, right? The access to land and natural resources and, and the right to own land and to commodify it and to monetize it and mass accumulation of mass production and mass consumption and mass accumulation of wealth is all around this this notion of ownership and individualism and, and property and that ownership and control. So that that's core. And we see that in the courts today where we're struggling around does the government have the right to lease public lands to mineral extraction? And we're fighting this notion of private versus public land and public resources and public property. It's around our water systems. So it is about property. It's about profits in the energy sector where the top 10 energy utility firms in the Fortune 500 companies, they they make over a trillion dollars in uh, half trillion dollars uh, in market value each, and they're benefiting from a natural monopoly. They're benefiting by the fact that they have an exclusive right to the energy infrastructure. They have um, huge subsidies that are coming from us, from taxpayers, that are feeding into that profit, and they are not, or they fight to pay for the external uh, externalities, the the costs of of polluting our environment, the cost of the health care. So the extreme profits in, in the energy sector is, in the fossil fuel industry particularly, is part of what we have to fix when, when we talk about energy democracy. We've got to take public subsidies out of the fossil fuel industry and put it in the hands of, of a clean energy future. We've got to protect our our natural resources and not make it owned by a limited 1% in the population. And 
because at the end of the day, what we're doing is fueling the power and the privilege element of it, which is the inequalities that, that come out of that, that kind of capitalist structure where social, economic, and political inequalities. I mean, if you want to look at it at one level, I mean, the CEOs of these fossil fuel industries, I think there's a recent study that showed that they make between 150 to 500 times that of the average American in terms of their compensation package. But the benefits and burdens of that industry is unevenly distributed. And they're using those revenues to buy more privilege. So they bought our politicians, and we have to find a way to make sure that we are uh, taking back our, our government and taking back our politicians by taking money out of politics. So those are some, I mean, we probably can talk an entire session just on the analogies, but those are the elements that you know, energy democracy is really changing in terms of how it how it views the property, how it views profits, how it deals with issues of uh, inequities. There are several authors in the book who talked about local decision-making. You and, and I both have talked about local self-reliance. Steve Servas and Anthony Giancaterino in the book describe, quote, local policy organizing has the flexibility to experiment with different solutions, allow for community participation and control in the decision-making process. At ILSR, we, we use the term subsidiarity, which means decisions should be made closest to where people are affected by them. A question I get a lot about this notion of local self-reliance, local control is, you know, the problems that we have are on a global scale, like climate change. Can we really scale up this model of energy democracy fast enough to address this global climate crisis? Or do we have to rely on the big institutions, the big companies that have concentrated all the wealth to do this for us? Right. Well, you know, I, I think this whole notion of local self-reliance is, is happening. It's, it's working already. I mean, if you, if you just look at it from the standpoint that 70% of Americans alone want clean energy and two-thirds of Americans believe in climate change, <clears throat> I think the the barometer is obviously suggesting that what we care about, most people care about. I think our real challenge about scaling this is really about, again, getting back to the question about getting money out of politics getting money out of the fossil fuel industry and getting the politicians out of the way. So the investments that we're currently making to prop up and allow profiteering to take place in the fossil fuel industry can be invested in decentralized, locally owned and controlled energy systems. I mean, it's just really a question of the imbalance in where we're putting public resources, if, if we had the same kind of money and subsidies that we're putting in the private fossil fuel industry and put it into this clean energy, energy democracy future that we're talking about, we can get to scale and we get to scale quickly. And this, this movement is not limited to the United States. The global south and, and as you can see in terms of the even the Paris Accord, I mean, they, they have the same challenge because we're all dealing with the same multinational fossil fuel industry. And so it's a people's struggle, and it's only through that 70% who wants clean energy and two-thirds who believe in climate change that's going to make the difference to get politics out of the future that we all care about. So, Denise, we often end our podcast by asking for a reading recommendation, but since we're talking about your book, I'd like to first propose everyone that is listening should go read this book. It is a really crucial way to understand 
the challenges that we face in the energy sector and in our economy more broadly and how best to address them. You already alluded to this, though, that you have a love of history and do a lot of reading on your own about this issue and in, the, in comparison to other issues. So I'm curious if there's something else you've read that you think would help folks understand the idea and importance of energy democracy or just that you think is important for people to read. Well, let's see. There's so many books. But you know what? I think what I'd love folks, because I think we're so fixated on technologies that we are losing the sensibilities about what energy democracy really is about. So I would probably recommend the book Think Like a Commoner. I'm sure you may know about it. It was written several years ago by uh, David Bollier, I think his name is. Um, as a really important read about what does the commons look like and how do we think about our natural resources, the environment, and our energy resources as a commons. Well, thank you very much, Denise. I just want to say thank you again for this book, Energy Democracy, Advancing Equity and Clean Energy Solutions. We'll have a link to where folks can find the book from their independent bookseller on our show page, uh, as well as Think Like a Commoner and some other resources related to our conversation. Thanks again, Denise. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. This is John Farrell, director of ILSR's Energy Democracy Initiative. I was speaking with Denise Fairchild of Emerald Cities Collaborative about her book, Energy Democracy, Advancing Equity in Clean Energy Solutions. For a link to buy the book from your independent bookseller, see our show page. Also check out examples of cities exercising their energy democracy muscles in ILSR's Community Power Toolkit, and read more about ILSR's working definition of energy democracy at ILSR.org. That is ILSR.org. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 80 past episodes of the Local Energy Rules podcast. Until next time, keep your energy local, and thanks for listening.